I tend to say most folks on their first deal, when they try to cut corners, do things a lot themselves, save on legal, save on this cost, go with the lower, what ends up happening is they spend more time explaining why things didn't hit where they were, rather than saying, look, we didn't make this margin, but here's what we got out of this. Project was on time, project got finished, we can sleep well at night, and the next project, we won't need to use this because we understand how to do this ourselves. So to me, that's a challenge I think a lot of folks when they're trying to take down an asset for the first time or maybe level up, they they kind of try to figure out as much as they can and you just don't know when that's gonna bite you. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Rahul Patel. Rahul is a commercial real estate attorney. He is an investor, and he has a very extensive experience in law and business. We're going to talk about that here at the beginning of the show once he's on. Today, our conversation is around a few different areas of his expertise. We discuss property tax law and disputes in states like Texas, which are property tax states. And if you didn't know, property tax rates have gone up pretty considerably in a few different states in the past few years, largely as a result of all the appreciation and COVID and everything that's happened. And investors need some recourse. We need an ability to push back and dispute our property taxes with local municipalities and state governments. And that's one of the areas that we're going to talk about today. We also talk about Rahul's experience and observations of new real estate investors. And we dig into mistakes that new real estate investors make when they're really trying to do those first couple of deals and scale their portfolios. There are some pretty common underlying themes amongst those who kind of get stuck in the real estate experience and building their portfolios. So we talk about the big mistakes that he sees them making as well. He has a wealth of experience in real estate investing and angel investing and entrepreneurship. So there's a lot that we cover today and he brings a lot of wisdom to this conversation. So you're going to enjoy it. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Rahul Patel. Let's go. Rahul, thank you so much for joining us today. You have a very impressive background and track record. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you've accomplished, give us an introduction as to what you're up to today and kind of where you came from in the legal space. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town. Parents were immigrants. And, uh, you know, I took kind of a different path and decided to get into marketing and economics where I learned kind of how to sell stuff and also figure out what people want. And struggle with finding how to put all the pieces together. And long story short, you know, I ended up going to law school. And that's really where I found a, a lot of my passion that matched business, marketing, and then all the tools you need to be able to navigate systems that sometimes become roadblocks and really put that to work. And then, you know, about 10 years ago, we started our own law firm. We, we broke off and started our own firm. And we have grown our firm to be one of the state's largest in commercial property tax litigation. So, we specialize in large. We have 420 plus multifamily apartments that we represent on the litigation side. So we go there to help you reduce your property tax bill, which is a big part of what you're kind of 
you know, your, your NOI is based off of at this point. And from there, we developed a lot of relationships with multifamily owners, property owners, started doing a lot of real estate work and just general business service litigation work. And so that's what we still do today. We've got offices in uh, three of the major cities in Texas, San Antonio, Fort Worth, and in Houston. And then from there, you know, I've been fortunate. And so we've started a lot of different businesses. Some have done great. Some have done um, okay. And, you know, some we've learned more about, more from than, than, than we probably uh, ever got back from it. But we've, you know, right now I'm, I'm also the, one of the largest franchisees of F45 and I help them on the brand fund board and, and do quite a bit. And then also another big part of what I've been focused on is I, I am the chairman of the board for the largest angel and investment organization in Texas. And so that's been another opportunity to really learn a lot, but also be able to apply that for, for our clients in, on the legal field. So that's a little bit about me and I've got two kids, married, and I just try to find as much uh, free time as I can. I love it. We may need to have a chat about Texas property taxes after we're done here yeah, recording. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> Some questions for you there. You know, there's so much to talk about for folks when they're getting started as real estate investors and really focusing on the right details so that, that they can scale effectively and not get bogged down by, you know, big mistakes that folks make. And I know that's one of the things that you like to talk about. So let's dive in and, and talk about mistakes that people make when they're first getting started as real estate investors and focusing on the wrong things. You know, I think the biggest mistake that I see people really doing is, is trying to figure out how to make maximum money on every deal, especially in the early onset. And really is, as you know, you, you're using that and you should be using that no different than education. I no different than maybe your first couple of jobs or your first five, six, seven, eight years in the workplace. You're really looking to great, gain a great education out of that. And in the ROI may not seem like that was worth it, but really it's what you're learning out of it. And, you know, I've, I've got a, someone I know who's, who's getting into the GC space and building, you know, projects. Yeah, the biggest mistake I see is everything is about, well, it's too expensive and, and you know, we just had to go with a cheaper option or this was a, a cheaper vendor. And then they find themselves in lots of problems. And to me, that's where people really struggle because they didn't really learn. And then what they do is they spend more time solving problems and issues that derail them from the timeliness and the, and the project that's really at hand. And you can always get more efficient and you can always find ways to then fine tune those. But it's no different than, you know, having a great internship or having a great first couple of careers somewhere where you learn a lot because of who you're around. Right. And who's teaching you these things, because those things are far more valuable than what you paid them. And that's why they sometimes demand the costs and fees that they want. So I think, you know, a lot of times early on, the, the focus is, is just doing this when reality it should be what 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 really can I gain from this that is going to pay me exponential dividends as I continue to go forward on these projects. And it increases your chance of success from the start. Because I, I tend to say most folks on their first deal, when they try to cut corners, do things a lot themselves, save on legal, save on this cost, go with the lower, what ends up happening is they spend more time explaining why things didn't hit where they were, rather than saying, look, we didn't make this margin, but here's what we got out of this. Project was on time, project got finished, we can sleep well at night and the next project, we won't need to use this because we understand how to do this ourselves. So to me, that's a challenge. I think a lot of folks, when they're trying to take down an asset for the first time or maybe level up, 
they they kind of try to figure out as much as they can and you just don't know when that's going to bite you and for some people it happens right off the bat and they never get back off that ground or sometimes it happens at a point where it's so critical where they were really going to hit that growth period and something that they did six months, a year or two years ago is starting to really rear its head, right? And it's slowing them down from the positive traction that they should have had from the beginning. Interesting. So it sounds like this has a lot to do with being a bit penny wise and pound foolish and being reluctant to essentially pay someone to do a lot of the things in our deals, in our real estate businesses, and not focusing on working on the business rather than working in the business. Sounds like that's really the the biggest observation that you have there. Yeah, I think that's the same thing people always go. People start off and say, hey, can you just take a quick look at this or I'm buying this asset? And it's like, well, there, there's a quick look at it. And that's the same situation when you say, did you just do a quick look when you were going to buy that? And so if you just did a quick look when you were going to buy it, then how do you think that project's going to work out if you just quickly looked at it? If you didn't put your eyes on it, if you didn't spend time there, if you didn't drive around, if you didn't look at the property during the day, didn't look at it also at night, what does it look like at night? What does it look like during the day? I mean, there's a big difference. And you'll know the guys that are doing the deals that are going to be sustainable, you, you can figure it out. Like they understand because why? They have lived it and breathed it and they're, they're doing all of the due diligence versus the guys that are going down there to take an Instagram shot of what they bought and their paperwork shit and their deal structure is garbage and they don't understand what they've agreed to. They don't understand. And those things will come up when it comes to a, when they're time to buy it or sell it or ex, you know, whatever. We've seen people close with, you know, we, we've seen people close with massive floodplain issues on properties and they just didn't pick up anything in the title and didn't do anything due diligence and they're dealing with it down the road. And you know what? Brokers are smart, sellers are smart, buyers are smart, and they'll know when you're a rookie and they'll know when you're not. It's not that hard. And so, you know, I think that's the thing where I say is like, if you have not gained an expertise in something, then you need to really obtain the services of an expert. Now, I'm not saying you need to have, you know, the greatest, you know, you hire a Robert Shapiro to take down a, a $20 million, $10 million asset, but you do need to have somebody that can answer 10 or 15 reasons why I should do this. And I think that's the thing that I think a lot of folks, um, I'll spend folks and say, well, you know, I've got somebody who can do it X. It's like, you know what, go for it. And then typically we wish them the best of luck. But a lot of times, you know, just like anything else, you pay for what you get, right? And so that's exactly what it is, whether it's a survey, a due diligence, a review, those are the things when you put your eyes on something and you trust what you can do, I think you need to really obtain the services that early on to really help you accelerate your growth, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. I think part of that is making offers that have that due diligence period and that we can get out of if we find something in due diligence without taking a huge bath, whether it's on earnest money deposits or you know hard money, anything like that. Do you have thoughts about mitigating that risk in the offer phase so that we don't feel a massive sunk cost and we don't feel compelled to close on a deal that is suboptimal, if you will. Number one, engage with your, engage and create a relationship with experts that you want to do business with and need prior to doing that. The biggest thing you said is most people go, well, hey, I have this deal under contract now. We're trying to close. Can you look through this stuff? It's too late because you've got a deal. You've agreed to terms. You've agreed to things without knowing. 
So, you know, really engaging that because then you don't have your earnest money at risk. You don't do certain things that, you know, in order to, to rush the deal. So those are things that I call, again, could be sunk cost at the onset, or also, you know, you go through that one or two times, you'll know how to structure your own LOI the next time. So yeah, you paid for it up front a couple of times, but at the third time, you'll be able to know how to structure your general LOI or before you, hey, does this look good on this deal before we get a PSA ready? You'll, you'll do those things, but those are where I call like, you know, frustrations when we see somebody come to us with a PSA and then they want to negotiate things and they already have an LOI in place and they've got, you know, these things that just go, well, you know, this we're, we're down the road. These, these are things that have now become more difficult to do. So, you know, to me, those are, those are conversations you want to start to have prior to getting there. And again, after one or two times, you really shouldn't have to do this over and over again, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sure does. And just to backtrack and define a few terms and flesh those things out. LOI being letter of intent, PSA being purchase and sale agreement. LOI comes before your PSA. Now, you mentioned about structuring your LOI that leads into, you know, an appropriately structured PSA, if you will. Now, let's talk about structuring an LOI and contingencies or other factors that folks should put in to a letter of intent when they're looking at a particular, you know, deal. So how do you think about structuring an LOI and contingencies, everything like that? You know, uh, my, so my law partner handles up most of the real estate type of stuff um, on, on our side of the multifamily things. But the things that I know, you know, I look at what, what to make sure they structure in there. You know, I always feel like the folks that really lead with the most highest level of honesty in the LOI or structure tend to do the best long-term. So sometimes what happens is people are agreeing to things because they feel like their broker or their situation goes, well, we just say this, we'll get the deal while the other guy doesn't, we'll deal with it later, or we'll, 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 we'll just ask for more time later. You know, I think the reality of that is, is, you know, people understand the sophisticated seller is going to go, I know this guy's going to need more than 60 days. There's not a chance he's going to be able to close this thing in 60 days because title is going to take X. This is going to take X. And I've closed 18 deals before. So I know the lending is going to come through that quick, right? So instead, just just talk about it. Say, look, we're ready to get this under deal. We are ready for our, our money to go hard at X point. But at the same time, we might need two extensions. And so even though the guy is really ready to sell and he wants to sell fast, at the end of the day, everyone wants to sell fast, but they want the deal to sell too, right? So the, the reality of this is if you're going to get the best price, it may not just be price and speed because speed typically people can, I, you know, I feel like most of our sophisticated owners that are look on the sell side, they can smell speed out so quick. And, and a lot of the young guys going in there and doing deals, they feel like, oh, well, we're going to win on speed or we're going to win on a little more money. It's like they already know it. And all they're doing is setting you up sometimes to grab your earnest money quicker than you're going to be able to do. Because once that money's in there, now it's your decision. And one of you want to fight me for 100 grand or 50 grand or 200,000 when they know that we're going to be able to we have the we've done the deal. We know what we have. So it's kind of one of those things where come in and maybe negotiate that now. Say, hey, we're gonna need we if we need an extension, this is what we're willing to pay for every time we need one, and we may need up to two. So yeah, it might take a little more time, but we're willing to put up sufficient cash flow now versus then trying to negotiate that later. Because I've seen that. Well, then it's like, well, we need thirty days, and the seller's like, all right, well, I need two hundred thousand hard, and like, well, two hundred thousand hard, like okay. So now they're stuck between letting fifty go or put up another two hundred. And then what do you do? You're stuck, right? You're losing the deal. You, you're close. You're moving along. You're two. Maybe you raise sixty percent of the equity, seventy percent of the equity. You're not there yet, and we know it. As a seller, like you're like, I get it. 
but you know, this kid doesn't have the equity or this deal doesn't have the equity or whatever. So I think those are the things that if you're more transparent, you may lose the deal, right? You may lose a deal or two, but the reality of this is, is like, you're gonna create one, a reputation that says, you know what you're doing. You know that you understand business, that things don't run always as smooth as possible, but you have a plan that both sides feel this is fair going into it to allow for those contingencies. So to me, those are types of things that you can really structure that need to be honest with. And I don't, I think you win more deals that way with better buyer sellers than you do the other way around. Makes a lot of sense. So in the past few years, we've had massive price appreciation in a lot of properties, not just in Texas, but in other property tax states, if you will, without income taxes. And I'd like to at least touch on, you know, your thoughts as to whether property owners and multifamily investors were largely ready for those property tax increases and how can they kind of prepare or think about property taxes into the future, like generally speaking? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to whether they were prepared, I think for the majority of them were, were not. Honestly, you can't really blame them because especially, I can only speak to Texas for, for example, is we're annual reevaluations. And so you don't know what the evaluations are. And so what most folks did was they relied on some expert in the transaction process, whether it's a consultant or someone else to say, can you give me um, you know, uh, projections on three years taxes? And they're gonna do that. Nobody predicted 25, 30, 40, 50, 100% increases. There's no way. Because you're, you, the folks that they're asking for are, are being asked to do something, one, that's impossible because they can't predict what some other government bureaucrat's gonna predict that the cost is. And second is it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of scenario. I either give you a little kind of a low wall estimate, kind of, well, you know, it's, we think it's gonna be about a 3%, 4% and here's what we can do and we believe we'll be Because if they give it too high, they're gonna go, oh, you're out of your mind, I'm gonna call somebody else. And, and if you go too low, you know, you're gonna be, what's, what are you gonna hold me to? I mean, it was 4% and the county came up with 11. I mean, I, we can't, can't do that. So I think that, you know, were they prepared? No, I don't think anybody was. And to be honest with you, the best thing to do in what we've been able to do, like I said, I have over foreign multifamily projects in litigation every year. And so the best thing to do is, we always call it ROI. So every, you know, just like you guys look at it, I look at the same thing for a property tax or for a property tax payer. So for every million dollars um, in taxable value, you're talking about twenty six, twenty seven thousand dollars in taxes. So if I can mitigate and give you a five X on every one of those, you're going to win. And so for us, if I can just reduce your taxable value by two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in taxable value, I will always be returning you a return on your dollar to me. You pay me 5,000, I at least save you seven. But now it exponentially grows from there based on what we're able to do, right? So for us, we always look at that as making sure I can provide you an ROI. And that's why clients, you know, grow. we grew from 25 to 30 to 300 to 400. And that's just the multifamily side is no matter what, every year, if you file a lawsuit with me, you're gonna make money, I make money. You, I mean, and so everyone kind of wins, right? It's a, it's a generally, it's a win-win scenario that you can predict what's gonna happen. Except perhaps the uh, the tax man sounds like he generally doesn't win, but I guess they always the win in the end. Well, the, the tax man always wins. Okay, they're always <laughs> they're always getting their piece. Trust me, be, uh, they're always getting their piece. So the tax man's always win. Uh, we we know that, right? So there's yeah, no checks and sure. balances on the IRS and for the government. <laughs> so 
So fighting down an assessment or getting an assessment adjusted down, what do you see as like the kind of the top drivers that would cause an assessor to get an assessment wrong on a multifamily property, just sure. generally speaking? They're always in pretty much incorrect because in Texas, there's it's been a mass appraisal system. So you're talking about annually reevaluating every single piece of property in the state of Texas, mineral rights, personal property, every vehicle that's under a fleet management. Um, I mean, every piece of land, every home, I mean, everything. So no matter what, if you look at a major county like Texas, in, in Texas, like Bear County in San Antonio or, you know, in Dallas County or Harris County in Houston, there's just too many. So they can't, they can't, they don't know the, the nuances of anything, right? Because, but you as an owner, you know everything that's going on. Like, you know that rents are down. You know that XYZ's out. You've got unit issues. You've got, you know, your maintenance and landscaping is up 17% and you have no way to do anything. Water utilities have gone up by X or whatever that is, right? And so you know everything about it and they don't. And honestly, there's just no way they can. They're using Google data and they're just mass appraising and they just can't. Like in Bear County, I think there's like two people that are kind of overseeing multifamily. And it's not just multifamily, they're also seeing other accounts. So you're talking about, you know, they're looking at multifamily and storage and industrial, and you've got two people looking over those divisions. That's just not enough. I mean, think about it. You can't even run a, you know, investment firm with two people to kind of look at every property in Bear County. You wouldn't be able to do it. You're, you're for profit, right? So it's, it's just, it's an impossible task. I really don't blame the county. I don't really blame the appraisal districts because they've got a mass appraisal process. They've got a budget that they've got to work within and they've got limited resources. So it's really our side of the job now to make sure that they have enough information to bring the value where we believe it should be, if that makes sense. So. Absolutely. So again, generally speaking, what do you find is the information that they need? Is it like just T12 financials and saying, hey, look, our costs went up by blank and our NOI is such and such. And so our value should be this, which is lower than what? Yeah, we look at, it's a lot of factors, right? We just, I mean, there's a ton of factors that go into it. So at the end of the day, we're going to look at the factors that are, that are kind of affecting that property. So a lot of it's just, you know, maybe it's the area, maybe it's the part of town, maybe it's the class of, you know, class of the project that's there compared to what else is in the market. You know, there's just all kinds of things that we kind of look at in terms of market specific things that are going to create advantages for us there, right? To be able to argue. So whether it's rents, increases, cap rates, vacancies, collection issues, deferred maintenance issues, insurance things, or certain counties of Texas right now that are becoming very difficult to insure because of floods and hurricane damage and things like that. So there's just stuff that's just individual to that that we can say, and I would say is what drives our economic return down are usually the factors that say, hey, this asset should be worth less, if that makes sense. Absolutely. How long does that process typically take in working with the, the government? To Usually it takes anywhere from about on the short end, about three months to a long end, about, you know, 18 months, if that makes sense. Average is probably nine months for us to file a lawsuit and get a case resolved and litigated and uh, in, a, in a cost effective manner for the client where they're not paying large amounts of invoices or litigation. Okay. How long are you typically, or how long is an owner typically paying taxes or, or are they paying taxes on that increased valuation as long as you, like as long as you're in the litigation with the government, they paying on that increased valuation and then 
if it comes down, they get a, like a rebate or something? Like, what does that process look like? There's a lot of different nuances and different ways to kind of approach that. So uh, typically, there's a couple of options. Number one, you know, if there are some legal tax code provisions that we can invoke that would say, hey, I am going to make a payment on the amount that we don't have in dispute. So we believe, let's say we, we believe it's 10 million, you believe it's 15 million county. And so we're gonna pay on $10 million in taxes and then we're gonna, we're gonna deal with this through the litigation. So there's some things like that. There's also, you can pay on previous year's value. So let's say county believes it's 15, we believe it's 10, but last year it was eight. We, we, th- we know it went up, but we just don't know. So we, we, but last year was assessed at eight. We could pay on eight and then go forward. There are some provisions though that says if the settlement doesn't come out to be that number or it's higher, you got a very short period of time in order to pay the tax difference. Otherwise, a large amount of penalties and interest accrue. So there's a lot of different options. A lot of folks pay the full amount that's assessed because it's better to pay it and then wait for it to come back to us versus not having it at when when it's due and we're having penalties and interest and things like that accrue. So it's really a strategic approach of what people want to do. A lot of times it's not optional. Uh, the lenders require uh, escrows, right, of whatever the assessed number is. And so those are the types of things that, um, you know, again, contractually or legally, you know, some lenders might work with you on and say, hey, look, the taxable value increases every year in Texas. It's really unique. So what we would do is we'd agree to 5% of the prior year's final assessed value as an escrow amount. And anything above that, you know, be liable for, responsible for to the lender than 30 days of upon request or finality. So there's things you may be able to carve out with some lenders, but you know, a lot of lenders are just gonna make you escrow with the amount that's due. And then when the amount comes back, then you get a check, right? So it just, it really just depends on the scenario. Gotcha. Okay, cool. There's so much there. I'm sure we could talk about that topic for hours. Yeah. Yeah. But right now we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Rahul, I've got three questions I ask every guest in the show. Are you ready? All right. Yeah, I'm ready. Awesome. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Adding people around me um, and adding, adding people around us. And so the tendency is to try to keep doing things yourself or you know, not really needing that. And I think you know, adding people around you, one, it, it helps you really focus on the things that you like to do and that you're good at and you enjoy. Uh, or maybe it's just a little more free time. That's a huge investment to have. You know, I think a lot of people... They try to do things on their own too much and rather than adding folks to see if you can grow. So, you know, not only does it, does it help in that respect, but you know, you bring different ideas, perspective, um, things, things that ideas that come of that to help you yourself keep up with, whether it's trends or just, you know, whatever that might be. So adding people around you that fit your culture, that's a, that's a great investment because I think it just, it pays dividends to what you're trying to do. And the truth of the matter is, is, most people, it's not that fun doing things by yourself. I mean, so, I mean, that's why I'm in group fitness. That's why we've invested so much in F45. Working out, it's great, right? We know it's how healthy it is for you. You're, you look like you're in good shape too. But like working out by yourself is never, in my opinion, is never as great as it is when you get a great session in with other people, right? And that creates energy. It, it, it attracts itself and you push yourself harder. So it's kind of like that Belgian horse example that's been kind of popular right now. It's like, you're not gonna push yourself by yourself the, the way you can when other people around you. And so, you know, whether in good times or bad times, you know, it forces you to kind of go, look, I gotta, I gotta find solutions because it's not just me, there's other people that rely on me as well. And so, you know, to me, I think investing in, in people around you is, is super, super important, so. 
I love that. Totally agree on the fitness front. I trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu, been doing that about yeah. eight years. Yeah. And yeah. especially as I've gotten older, the group fitness has become even more important for social value and exactly yeah. pushing yourself. And right. It's so absolutely. much there. Sometimes yeah. it's just, you just want to, you know, you get to chat with a few people, right? And that's, that's more fun than the workout itself. And, but it, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, it, 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 you know, fitness is so important, but investing in people, I think is, 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 is awesome. Cause it's just, you have down days and the people around you that'll pick you up and they, they, they and they'll know, and they'll pick up on it. And those are things that keep you, keep you going sometimes. I love it. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Well, investing in a business that relied on the success of another individual. So, you know, it's been a long time. I haven't been able to talk a lot about it just because it just, I guess I've tried to kind of, to some extent, learn my lessons from this time period and move on. But, you know, I, I started as an NBA sports agency business. You know, we got to the point where we're representing, you know, NBA, NBA players, Olympic medalists. And, and from the outside, it was awesome, right? I mean, we're at Spurs games, we're at NBA games, summer league, we're hanging out with Hall of Fame legends. But, you know, what, what it came down to is your reliance wasn't on a business or a model or a, or or something that of service. What you were doing is you were relying on the success or loyalty or you know drive ambition seriousness of another person and to me that um, it was just it, it was a it was a terrible uh, terrible investment right and, and not financially it was just terrible investment of my time and my energy and so you know to me that was probably the worst investment i think and i think you know if if you look at investments i would make them in 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 things that can you can control, you can adapt, you can change, you can reuse, or you can create something around. But I think investing in another person is just, it's really, if you're gonna invest in another person, invest in yourself, right? Or invest in what you do for what you do. And so to me, investing back in education, tools, resources that I would want, uh, or I would want would be more important than, than ever investing in, in someone else. Makes sense, wow. Yeah. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Have a short memory and, and don't look backwards. You know, I think if you do, and if you do look backwards, just, just try to figure out what lesson you learned, right? Um, or why you turned right when you should have turned left. Uh, and don't focus on the fact that you did. And because at the time you made the decision with the best information that you probably had at, at hand. And I think for most successful people, I, you know, you, you're not really making terrible decisions. You just, that's the information that you had at the time. And what, what were you basing that off of and what were you doing? And so, to, you know, I think to me, I, I, I've been fortunate. I don't know if it's a genetic or gene, if it's just your personality, but I, I feel like I have that gene that it's, it's short-lived. So the failures are, are, are short-lived um, and I focus on the wins. And if I had a loss, that I'm, I'm more driven to find another win, right? And not focused on going, well, I gotta make up for that loss. It's more like, all right, well now I, I gotta just gotta win now, right? I gotta win on another, some, something and it's not to make up, but it's just, that's what I wanna do. So to me, I think having a real short memory, but really when you, as I say, like when you, when you look back, cause the tendencies, you are gonna look back. Even the person's like, oh, I'm, I, you know, it is what it is. 
well, or I moved on. You're gonna look back and things will, people bring things up. Oh man, how's it going? You're not representing NBA players anymore. It's like, no. And that memory immediately goes back to like the losses, but then kind of remember what that loss was and why you, why you felt that was. So I did a, a session called Quitting Can Be Winning. And I think that the fear that people have, if there's a lesson that I can say is, people are afraid to quit. We've got this like Instagram quote that's like, you can't quit. Like, like you know, you, you don't give up. And that there's truth there, but there's also a major amount of fallacy in the sense that people are, are continuing to go down a path where they know it's not working. So what I mean by that is quitting something at that time can be winning if you've, if you've understood a valuable lesson in how you got there. So walking away from a deal that is not gonna happen versus continuing to put money in that one you know, you're, you're, you're will, what are you doing? You're willing to prove to everyone that you, you were right. It doesn't do anything you never recover versus understanding why we missed that one. You know what, we just missed the trend here. And sometimes, you know, there's things that, like COVID that you can't predict. It had nothing to do with anything that you did or didn't do. You just couldn't predict it was gonna happen and no one could. So those are things I would say, like that's where I would, I, I think people tend to, to, to forget if that makes sense. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out or get in touch or track you down, where can they find you? Bunch of different places. Uh, easiest is first the, our website with www.patelgains, uh, P-A-T-E-L-G-A-I-N-E-S on the law firm side, uh, or my website, which is Rahul, R-A-H-U-L-B as in boy, Patel.com uh, or on Instagram at the official RBP. So, uh, or just Google it. I'm sure you can find it. Uh, just make sure it's the right Rahul Patel. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see the year engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.